Hello everyone, welcome again to A Reason for Hope. We're glad to be with you and we are glad that you are with us, A Reason for Hope, in case it's your first time. is an hour-long live program which is guided by your questions on the Bible. We are live with you on multiple platforms online, which I'll be going over in just a moment. And we have some guests here who love the Lord and love His Word and love to answer your questions on it. So if there's a a verse or passage of scripture that has confused you, or you'd like to have it explained a little bit more, maybe something that you are going through in your life, you're trying to make a decision and want to know what the, the Bible says about it, maybe even different lifestyles and choices and things going on in the world, maybe other religions and worldviews as they compare to Christianity and the Bible, really anything along those lines, as long as it's an honest and sincere question. And again, as long as you know that uh, the answers are going to come from the Bible, on this show that's what we're all about so once again you can send in your questions on all those platforms that i'll be going over and uh, we'll receive those and uh, pass it out the time for them today my name is dave robson i'll be with you on all those platforms and receiving those questions watching for your questions coming on in with us today we have pastor scott richards he's a senior pastor here at calvary christian fellowship of tucson where we're broadcasting from how are you doing today fantastic seems like just yesterday we were sitting right here oh it was just yesterday we were it was just yesterday. yes that's why it feels that way yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing good <laughs> yeah i'm doing fantastic <laughs> thanks for being with us yeah lots of interesting stuff going on um we're uh, look always looking forward to your questions out there hope you'll uh feel free to get your questions to us, sometimes people ask, you know, what's a good question for the program? Well, if a question matters to you, it matters to us here. Uh, any question about the Bible, any question about Bible prophecy, any question about personal issues in your walk with God, uh, we're happy to explore that. Maybe tough passages that raised more questions for you than giving you answers. Uh, we're all over it. Uh, just make sure it's sincere. And if you're looking for an answer straight from the scripture, that's what we're here to do every day. So yeah, right. uh, bring it on uh, yeah. on our various and sundry <laughs> websites. Bring it on. That's fighting talk. Yeah. yeah. Well, come, on. Come, come on. Come on. Come on. Come at me, bro. Give us a challenge. That was on Twitter earlier today. Come oh, at me, bro. Really come at bro. Yes. Yeah. Also with us, Pastor Sean Richards once again. How are you doing today? Oh, a lot to be grateful for. I'll start yeah. with mercy. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I will join you with that. Well, thank you as well for being so faithful to us and uh, giving the time to um, answer the questions. Uh, again, we never know really where it's going to go because it's based on your questions. It can uh, go all over the place from very uh, personal things and, and struggles to very specific words in the Bible and all uh, anything, as Pastor Scott said. Um, if, it's, if it means something to you, it means something to us, and we will gladly explore that. With you, as I mentioned, a reason for hope is a live broadcast. We are with you Monday through Friday, five to six p.m. here at Mountain Standard Time in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, you are more than welcome if you're in the Tucson area and looking for somewhere to fellowship. You're welcome to come and check us out in person. Remember that? Remember when people used to do things in person back in the day? Uh, <laughs> uh, come along. We're, we're Prince and I ten. We're just on the west side of the freeway. Pretty convenient location. So again, if you're looking for somewhere to to worship you're welcome to come along um, but uh, we are streaming live all around the world on our website calvarychristianfellowship.com while you're there you can check out uh, different events and things that uh, we have coming up and get some more information on our church there as well uh, but uh, we are streaming live if you go to that watch live tab that will take you out to our live page or you can just type in ccftucson.online.church in your browser that will take you straight to the same page as well 
uh, you'll see a video and you can sign in with a username and then be part of the broadcast in the chat function right there. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show and you'll see a schedule of upcoming events as well. So you can see what we have coming up. We stream our services here on Sunday and Wednesday evening as well. So you're more than welcome to join us for those things. We're on Facebook as well. Um, does anybody know if we're on Facebook yet? I didn't check right before the show, but we had some technical issues <laughs> yes, so far this are. week. We are awesome. So far this week, every day, Facebook has been kind to us. We've been streaming, so that's good to know. Um, they found some bugs and fixed them, uh, we hope. So we're on Facebook. Uh, it's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or facebook.com slash ccf Tucson. You can find us there. Don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that. And then again, the, uh, the comment section, the chat function there, you can send your question in. I'll be uh, watching and waiting for those as they come in today. We have an app for your mobile device. Once again, you've guessed it, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store. You can download our app and watch us on your mobile device. Take us with you wherever you go. And we have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well because we're just fancy like that. So if you have those devices, go to your uh, channel store and you can add Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and watch us on your big screen. We're on YouTube as well, live there as we speak. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel on YouTube. We'd appreciate it if you'd like and subscribe and click on the notification bell if you'd like to get a little prompt when we are live as well. And it's a great place for archives. Whenever we've been live, it archives there on YouTube. So follow that live tab and you can catch up on shows that you missed or rewatch a question if you wanted to just study that a bit more. And then again, our services at Calvary Christian Fellowship. So A Reason for Hope on YouTube is a good resource for you. Pastor Scott here is on Twitter. Scott Arthur H is his handle. If you'd like to follow along with him, Scott letter R, number four, letter H on Twitter. He posts all kinds of stuff, highlights from the show and commentary on things going on in the world, um, especially in the Middle East and uh, things pertaining to end times and biblical prophecy and things like that. So sure. follow yeah. along. Yeah on Twitter if you're on there. If you're on Rumble as well, we have a page, A Reason for Hope, Bible Q&A. We're not live there, but we post video content there as well. So that's a relatively newer platform, uh, Rumble, A Reason for Hope, Bible Q&A. You can add us there as well if you would. And then our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for Hope spelled out at gmail.com. I said out like a Londoner. Did you hear that? It slips out. <laughs> out. Check us out. Check us out. Check us out, mate. Yeah. Innit? Yeah. Yeah. Question. <laughs> what it, up? It slipped. I slip into it sometimes. <laughs> Depending no, on. No. Depending on who Sorry. I've been talking to. If I talk to my parents, it becomes very posh because I'm trying to be a good boy. But anyway, questions for hope at gmail.com. Questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com. If you listen to us on the radio, we're glad you're joining us on Reach Radio or another radio affiliate, but you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded, so we're not live with you, unfortunately. But uh, questions for hope at gmail.com. You can email us there and we'll get to that question on our next show and consider joining us live on one of those other platforms. Uh, if you're on your drive time, do be careful. Um, but once again, as we said, please send your questions in. We would love to receive them. Um, any kind of question on the Bible or any question that we can answer from the Word, anything along those lines, we're very uh, grateful for you, our viewer, and for this ministry and this time with you. Well, before we go any further, why don't we pause to pray? Sean, would you like to do the honors today? Be an honor. That'd be great. <laughs> Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We're 
thankful that you choose to use us in the ways that you see fit. And I want to ask for your spirit to carry this program and make everything that's said here meaningful from your word and reflection of your heart as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. 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 Well, before we get to questions, there was a couple of things I know we wanted to talk about. Where are we going to start over here? Well, uh, just update on Israel. It is uh, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles in Israel, mm. and uh, apparently over 60,000 uh, people uh, from o- over 90 nations, evangelical Christians, uh, joined the 68th annual Jerusalem March, uh, wow. which is uh, very significant. Uh, there's a number of articles uh, in the Jerusalem Post uh, today about uh, the controversy about uh, religious issues in Israel. Uh, on the downside of things, five uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews were arrested for spitting on evangelical Christians who were uh, at the, uh, uh, the area we know as the Western Wall. Uh, the, they were egged on uh, by a uh, fairly radical rabbi who said that it was uh, the uh, teaching of uh, the rabbis that uh, spitting on Gentiles and uh, those who are, uh, would oppose uh, Judaism was completely uh, a wonderful thing to do spiritually. Apparently the authorities did not agree and hauled off five of them for such a thing. Then uh, in Tel Aviv uh, today, um, a uh, leading Jewish rabbi uh, was there offering uh, prayers uh, during the Feast of Tabernacle at a particular park. And uh, in the midst of his prayers, uh, he was accosted this rabbi, Leon, uh, and uh, was pushed around by a protester. Uh, this is especially grievous because uh, Rabbi Leon lost his wife and his daughter in a terrorist attack earlier this year. So uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has responded to that and has said that there is no room for either of those kind of expressions of uh, religious intolerance uh, within uh, Israel. Uh, another interesting development, Benny Gantz, who uh, was part of Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, cabinet, kind of considered his right-hand man protege. I don't know if he called him an all-around good guy or not, uh, but uh, certainly uh, very tight with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. And then uh, they had their parting of the ways so that he became a member of the opposing coalition that kept Netanyahu out of power for a while. Well, it looks like they're getting back together. Why? Uh, because apparently Benny Gantz is uh, playing a key role in the uh, possibility of Saudi Arabia entering into the Abraham Accords. Uh, there is an uh, article in the uh, Jerusalem Post today uh, that says there is a hot rumor uh, that uh, Gantz is going to rejoin uh, with Netanyahu in his uh, governing coalition in order to be a part of these negotiations and uh, seeming confirmation that things are heading in that direction is that Benny Gantz was uh, spotted last weekend uh, going into the White House to meet with uh, the uh, Secretary of State and with President Biden over mm. these issues. So some uh, really major things are happening as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned. Uh, up to the north, of course, the Ayatollah Khomeini said that if Saudi Arabia entered into any kind of an agreement uh, with Israel, there would be a price to be paid. Uh, read that uh, you can probably count on at least one or two Saudi uh, oil facilities getting blown up within the next week. So that's kind of where we are as far as Israel is concerned. Yeah. As we always say, uh, our good friend Don Stewart uh, put it so eloquently, when it comes to biblical prophecy, 
Israel is the hour hand, Jerusalem is the minute hand, and uh, the Temple Mount itself is the second hand as far as keeping eyes on these events. So we try to keep you up to date. Yeah. Uh, lots going on over there. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yeah, certainly worth keeping our eye on that. Yep. Thank you for those those updates. Yeah. Well, the other thing we want to talk a bit about. Um, we can wait till tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, no, okay. Let's go out to the questions. Okay. Sounds yep. good. We got a lot of questions. Well, coming you'll in. never let's know. Well, you'll know. You'll know tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's. <laughs> if, if that's not a uh, cliffhanger, a, a cliffhanger, a teaser. I don't know what it. We need more of those. Yeah. We need more cliffhangers on yeah. this show. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's see. Question from CC from uh, Crystallized Cody here that he asked yesterday, and thank you for joining us again and being a regular and restating your question. Um, he asked. I heard at some point that uh, John 5, 4 wasn't in some manuscripts and also that this verse was uh, cultural superstition and pagan. Is there a reason it's in some translations and not others? Um, I have the verse here if you would like me to read it. I certainly can. Yeah, go ahead. From the New King James. Uh, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So that's the verse in question, John 5, 4. And it was meant to contextualize why the lame man, for the full setting, for those interested, was healed because he was trying to get into the pool first. So this situation where people were trying to get into the pool, there's this verse that explains why they were so eager, but doesn't add or necessarily take away from the fact that Jesus would go on to heal that man who was unable to follow this custom. Now, what's important first to clarify, and I'm against, uh, foreshadowing for tomorrow. I cringe every time I hear the word pagan because it's usually not actually a reference specifically to religions other than Israel's uh, recognition of the true and living God. It's just a curse and a byword to try to marginalize any belief as not something Christians have anything to do about and tainting the Bible by its presence. Um, Nothing could be further from the truth. Was it superstitious? I'd grant that, but the scripture acknowledging a false belief is no more an affirmation of it than, for example, the witch of Endor thinking that a god was rising out of the earth. It's just recording their error, but moving on to express something truthful that happened in history. So two honesties don't make a dishonest. But if, on the other hand, we're going to go, I guess, to the manuscript tradition, and this is usually a controversy more for the King James-only advocates, because there's about a half a page of passages that are in question as far as whether or not they were in the originals, not because of contradictory evidence or because this says something that's clearly contrary to Scripture, but because we don't have it in a lot of early manuscripts. And one of the possible theories, and this is a likely one, is that this was a scribal note that was explaining the custom as a side note, and then when a scribe copied the text, he thought it was a verse and added it in. That's a theory. That's not something that we could know for certain, but the lack of evidence in earlier manuscripts make us wonder why was this added in so late, and that's why uh, the King James Version was based on the Texas Receptus. It was in the Greek copies that we had. We found earlier ones that didn't have it, and so it asked questions. Notice it didn't produce conclusions. It made us ask questions, and these are questions that we need to ask because I want to know if something belongs in my Bible or not. So when we look at John 5, 4, let's first ask the substance of it. Does the claim that people thought at this time in history add to or take away from anything we know about God? 
No, you can work miracles through angels. That's not beyond the pale. Does it add or take away from the situation or diminish uh, Jesus's nature or attribute it to something like a created being? Once again, no. The fact that an angel stirring up the water would coincide with a miracle claim may or may not have been something that took place from time to time. Whether or not God was working, you be the judge. The fact is God did work in that situation, but not through the water, not through the angel if that was even the case. The third thing is, let's assume the worst. Remove it entirely from the text. What do we gain or what do we lose from that? Well, gaining maybe some security, maybe crossing our T's and dotting our I's and making sure if there's suspicion, better to err on the side of caution than to accept accept something, excuse me, that doesn't actually promote false doctrine, but wasn't in the Bible. The worst case scenario is what? nothing. We don't lose anything from this situation. We mm. just have to, I guess, adjust the verse counts of that passage going onward. You'll have to, I guess, John 3.16 won't be uh, altered by that, but there's yeah. other passages, and um, the New American Standard, I believe, is an example where they just don't have it. They just go right on from John 5.3 to John 5.5, 5, and none's the wiser. But that's the point. <laughs> now is, we are, though. But that's the point, is if we look at this or other passages, uh, another one is in 1 John uh, chapter 5, where it notes in these three agree as one, the Father, Son, and the Blood. That is a passage that doesn't appear in early manuscripts, so we ask questions. But does that mean that it doesn't belong in the Bible? Not necessarily. If it's removed from the Bible, what do we gain, what do we lose? Nothing and nothing. So when it comes down to it, the... This, I'll, I'll just say it, the pagan superstition that the Bible can't have any alterations, can't have any mistakes in transmission, can't have a single dot, a single letter missing or put in the wrong order anywhere at any time in history, otherwise the whole thing's forfeit, that's never what we meant by inerrancy. When we believe that the Bible's inerrant, what is that doctrine, and how does it fall in line with this? Well, it means that in the original manuscripts, the Bible was divinely inspired, as it claims to be. All Scripture, each and every one, literally, is God-breathed, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Uh, it, there's not a whole lot of room for error. Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. Uh, the Bible never presents itself as man's words about God, but God's words to man. And so when people say, well, men wrote it, men make mistakes, so the Bible has mistakes. Well, do men always make mistakes? No. Uh, if I had that kind of attitude and I was looking at the instructions, say, to put together my new vacuum cleaner and said to my wife, well, I, I'm not going to read these instructions because men make mistakes. Mm. Well, I think in the case of, uh, you know, the Hoover people, I can accept the fact that they probably got their story straight uh, yeah. as far as those instructions are concerned, because men don't always make mistakes. To add to this, we're talking about God revealing his nature uh, to people. Uh, we are told that he has exalted his word even above his name. Uh, we're told that uh, no scripture is of any private interpretation, but uh, holy men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, to speak the things that they did. Uh, we can see uh, Jesus' statement that not a single jot or tittle will pass away uh, from the Scripture till all things are accomplished. A jot refers to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. looks like a little apostrophe. A tittle is the tiny little line that differentiates between, say, a capital E and a capital F mm -hmm. in English. Uh, that's the tittle there, and Hebrew letters and Greek letters have tittles in them. What Jesus is saying down the crossing the T's and the dotting of the I's, uh, the Word of God is going to be preserved. Well, what about 
a passage like this where uh, there are those who will look at, say, the Texas Receptus upon which the King James, the New King James are based, that includes this, and then there are uh, what we would call the majority text, the critical text, uh, the uh, majority uh, of manuscripts uh, don't have this particular reference to it. Well, as Sean said, uh, what do we lose, what do we gain? Uh, probably not a whole lot. The only reason that when I've taught through this passage, full disclosure, I've commented upon this superstition. The Bible's not endorsing this superstition any more than it is endorsing the idea that uh, Jesus could be John the Baptist resurrected because King Herod thought that. Uh, it reports that King Herod thought that. It doesn't endorse the idea. Uh, the, the reason that I think uh, there's a, uh, a counter argument as to the reality of this is that it explains why uh, the man reacts to Jesus' question, do you want to be made well? Uh, the sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but when I'm coming, another steps in before me. Well, without that detail of that superstition, and you know, as you've mentioned before, Sean, we've talked about the Apocrypha and uh, the uh, angelology that is uh, really elaborate and fanciful in these, as we call them, fan fictions uh, about uh, biblical characters and so on. Uh, you could see that uh, would be very likely that uh, a rumor like this would get going. The Pool of Bethesda received water that would flow down from the Temple Mount, and so they would tend to consider that to be a sacred thing. Well, if someone said, ooh, wow, you know, uh, my, my, my uncle uh, Abe was down there, and he saw the water stirring, and then he saw an angel was stirring it, and, and boy, he stuck his foot in there, and his, his sprained ankle was healed. Well. You know, a few reports like that, and uh, people would be lined up around this pool at Bethesda, which literally means the pool of mercy uh, in the original language. Uh, We'd have a different word for it based on personal experience. But, uh, well, that was Siloam. Siloam. That, that was a different site. Uh, that was the uh, pool of getting hit in the head with a rock at Siloam. That, that's not in the original language, but, no. <laughs> but I digress. The, the bottom line, though, is, is this in the passage? Is this not in the passage? not really a hill that I'm going to die on as far as uh, my takes on the Bible. I tend to think the account in John chapter 5 is far more understandable when that particular cultural note is uh, included. Otherwise, we're kind of like, well, where did this come from? And those who say, well, it wasn't in the originals and probably wasn't there, they'd have to say, well, that goes back to this uh, superstition. Uh, that uh, the early manuscripts, uh, some of them had it, and about this angel stirring things up. doesn't say that the best way to be healed is to be around water when an angel stirs it up. No more it just than says touching. that this was the motive for everybody being there at that time, and the excuse this guy gave for hanging out there so long and not being healed. So uh, the, the, the bottom line is, um, you know, to me, uh, you can flip a coin, uh, and say, is it in? Is it out? For me personally, I always err on the side when there is like a manuscript dispute, unless it's just absolutely overwhelming. If there's one manuscript from 1700 that has a reference and the rest of the body of uh, manuscripts render this in a different way, I tend to go with the others. Uh, I'm not doctrinaire about it, but one of the things that I do as a pastor 
is realize I'm going to give an account to God for how I handled his word. And if I'm going to say to people that this wasn't uh, part of God's inspired word, well, I better be really sure about my facts because someday I don't want to stand before the Lord and he's going to say, well, why did you tell people that wasn't in my word? It was. Well, I stand corrected. Uh, if on the other side of the coin I include that and stand before the Lord someday and the Lord says, well, why did you include that? The manuscript evidence indicated that it was not. I feel a lot more comfortable saying, well, Lord, reason I did uh, was, first of all, it is in some of the manuscripts, and then second, uh, you know, I just think it uh, explains, without a lot of backtracking, what the motivation of this guy was and why he responded to you when you asked him that key question, do you want to get well? Yeah. So, there you go. Well, I hope that goes well, that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Can have other ones to I'll worry about. I'll be hiding behind the couch. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, all of that is just to say, if you're in a situation where you're teaching a Bible study, if you're a pastor out there, um, I would just uh, really exhort you to have that kind of perspective. We're not handling, um, you know, just intellectual curiosities. We're not uh, just trying to side with scholars that we tend to like uh, and be approved by our tribe. Uh, we're handling God's word here, and someday we will give an account for that, and that's why I take the position that I do. Like I said, your mileage may vary, as Sean, you so eloquently expressed. No doctrine of Scripture is affected, whether it's in or out. Uh, just to me, it just makes things a bit clearer. Uh, so, you know, you can weigh out both sides of that and come down to your own opinion. And so. just to be half a step ahead of where this might lead some people's thoughts, atheists will use this as a springboard, usually Bart Ehrman, who would say, well, you see, those passages, well, we don't know. So how do you know any of the verses in your Bible were actually there, and this wasn't developed over time? Well, because given the fact that these three to five verses where we have variance as how something was expressed, Jesus moves with anger or Jesus moves with compassion. Note the manuscripts. When we look at these things, we actually have evidence of a difference. And it's very rare when we come across these things, especially in a collection of books this thick. Yeah. Now, when those things appear, we ask questions about it. We're public about it. When people are depending on your ignorance and to wonder, well, what about the things we don't have evidence for? Guess what? You don't have evidence for them. Next conversation. This is why we're addressing these verses and not the thousand or so around. And that's such a great point to bring up because the thing I want to emphasize to me, I think, whoa, you know, well, like you say, how do we know any? Well, here's how we know. Uh, the New Testament that we have is not based on one or two manuscripts uh, that are hundreds of years uh, removed from the events. They're based on over 5,800 uh, at last count uh, manuscripts in the original language Greek. Uh, to add to that, we have over 18,000 examples of what are called versions, that is, translations of the New Testament uh, into other languages from around the time of Christ. To mm -hmm. add to that, we have over 86,000 examples of verse quotations in early church officials, one to another, and their correspondence uh, that date to the first three or four centuries after the time of Christ. Well, you take all of that data together, and uh, this is where it leads you. Uh, Dr. Robert L. Thomas, who was on the translation team for the New American Standard Bible, one of my, uh, my profs at, at Talbot Seminary when I was there, uh, did an analysis on this and came to the conclusion that uh, the vast majority of the New Testament, nearly seven-eighths of the whole, 
is accepted by scholars of all stripes, even the most radical scholars like the Jesus Seminar and Bart Ehrman and all these other individuals who are hyper, hyper skeptical. Seven-eighths is accepted as being true to the original beyond doubt. There's no, no uh, doubt about it, no speculation. If we remove what we would call comparatively trivial variations, and this is where someone like Bart Ehrman tries yeah. to make his hay because people don't understand about this, trivial variations like the spelling of a name or word order in a particular passage, if we remove these trivial variations, right, um, we come to a place where if we were to take the remaining passages of the Bible that are still held as being uh, subject to some doubt like this one. by scholars as being true to the original, like this one, uh, and print them up and put them on a page, we would come up with less than one half of one page of text. Mm -hmm. And no significant doctrine of Christianity is called into question in any of the disputed passages. Mm -hmm. So uh, don't let someone buffalo you. Uh, that's kind of how Bart Ehrman has made his living by buffaloing people by saying, oh, there's these variants and, mm -hmm. and boy, you know, you put them all together and there's thousands of these variants and things like that. He's talking about minutia there. In fact, if you read through one of his books like Misquoting Jesus, uh, what do you end up seeing at the end in the appendix that he hopes nobody's going to read? That not one single variant that he spends the entire book discussing is undermining the reliability of the Christian faith, call any major doctrine of the Christian faith into question. So when his claim is made that there are 600,000 variants in the original manuscripts, well, the problem with that is we don't even have 200,000 words in the New Testament. So either one word in the New Testament has been changed and altered at least three times across the manuscripts, or he's lying. He's manipulating you to try to make you think that a difference in word order or a spelling alteration or a transition in syntax from one language to another that they count as variants means that John 3.16 in one variant says God's to love the world, and John 3.16 in another manuscript says uh, dogs so ate the bone or whatever, right? So understand when you're being manipulated and understand how you counter that. Look up the claims and put the pieces together and realize this puzzle's upside down. Yeah. Well, Cece, thank you. I hope that clears that up for you. Thank you for your question today. Uh, I have a question from Yari. Uh, what are the windows of heaven in Genesis 7:11? Water. Um, basically, uh, there's some different ideas about that mm -hmm. uh, because in Genesis chapter 7 it talks about the windows of heaven being open and that contributed to the great flood. Interestingly, uh, we're told that the, uh, <coughs> the storehouses, the great deep, were also opened up and that's what contributed to uh, the worldwide flood. Uh, you know, there's some, uh, some pretty uh, fascinating statements that indicate uh, from the scripture that uh, the windows of heaven, uh, that is the place where rain precipitates from, uh, some believe that prior to the flood of Noah, there was a canopy of water that uh, surrounded the earth. Some people believe that one of the reasons that people lived so long is because this water canopy uh, shielded out a lot of the destructive cosmic rays and so on. And, and I'll, I'll let uh, more uh, eloquent people who've studied these sort of things from a scientific point of view talk about the meteorology involved. But there's some really interesting statements that we find, for instance, in the Psalms. Uh, we are told, uh, for instance, by the word of the Lord in Psalm 33 and verse 6, the heavens were made and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together in a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Uh, 
And so when we talk about the hydrology behind the flood, uh, people say, well, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's, where we got the, that's only half the story. The floods of the Great Deep were uh, the treasury of the Great Deep where the, uh, this water was stored were broken up. Interestingly, uh, it was just uh, about a year and a half ago, but there was a fascinating article in the New York Times where, uh, or I should say the Los Angeles Times, where they have discovered uh, off the coast of Los Angeles these huge tracts of water that are underneath uh, layers of shale and uh, sand that are out in the channel outside of Los Angeles. They estimated that if uh, these highly pressurized pockets of water that are just huge and immense go all the way up and down the California coast, if these things were broken up, uh, pretty much the entire LA basin up to the San Gabriel Mountains would be flooded as a result of something like that. They're like, well, Not we climate gotta, change. We gotta watch out for that, I guess. Mm -hmm. But here, you know, the bottom line is, uh, there are huge geologists have discovered, hydrologists <laughs> have discovered and analyzed huge tracts of water underneath the earth that are, have still uh, persisted to this day. Who knows what kind of tracts of water were there prior to the, uh, the flood of Noah, but certainly enough to provide all the water necessary uh, to be able to flood the entire earth. That's why we don't buy into the idea of a local flood uh, like some would want to uh, put forward because we are told that uh, at the end of this time, the tops of the highest mountains were covered uh, by over 30 feet. So that's not just uh, wa enough water to uh, roll a makeshift raft down the uh, Mesopotamian plain. Uh, you've got to have a global flood to be able to pull that off. So when the Bible speaks of global flood, we teach a global flood. And uh, we take a look at the fossil evidence and we discover, for instance, there's marine fossils on the top of Mount Everest they found. So how'd they get there? And uh, kind of gives some credence to that old Bill Cosby joke where he's uh, talking with God and he says, how are you going to do it? He says, I'm going to make it rain for a thousand days and drown them out. Right. Listen, do this, you'll save water. Let it rain for 40 days and 40 nights and wait for the sewers to back up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so so that, that's really what was being talked about yeah. there, right. Yari. Uh, some believe it is that canopy of uh, water that uh, was over the earth. Uh, some believe that, and boy, you know, if you've ever been in a real gully washer monsoon here in Tucson, you know, uh, uh, just even a minor amount of water uh, dropping in a short amount of time can really... <coughs> Uh, change the uh, the whole geography, the whole situation you're in. Oh, yes. You imagine your driving on a global plan. scale. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yep. There's a road I take to get my kids to school, and when it rains, they have to close it down. And you have to take a very, very long detour, and it's very annoying. And that's just one little rainfall. Yeah. And for those of you <laughs> who are uh, joining us outside of the greater Tucson area or outside of Arizona, we have uh, <laughs> in uh, Arizona what we call the stupid motorist law. And that means that when the, the monsoons are coming down, these huge rainstorms and the, the washes fill up with water uh, and they put up the barriers and they say, don't cross. Well, inevitably, as soon as you say, don't do something, what do we as human beings do? Well, we go, oh, it doesn't look that deep. I'll go and do it. Well, what happens is this water might not look deep, but it's running so rapidly mm -hmm. that uh, these cars get washed down into the arroyos and uh, it's great. Uh, you know, photographic fodder for the news because you have people sitting on the top of their car uh, while all this uh, flood water is going past them. Yep. And the helicopter comes in. The stupid motorist law says that you're going to pay $10,000 uh, 
of the fees to go rescue you if you go around those barriers. Yeah, water as a force of nature is more destructive than fire, believe it or not. As far as moving water is concerned, 10 pounds of pressure per square foot. And note as well, when that water is uh, coming in contact with anything else, everything has to be extremely disinfected or thrown out because if it gets into your house, what else is in there? It's, It's not... Uh, recoverable to say the least yeah our, our listeners in florida and other areas that are hit by hurricanes know what a storm yeah. even a localized storm like that can do can you imagine oh, yeah. on a global scale yes yeah absolutely so, wow yeah wow. well yari thank you thank you for that question uh we had a question coming from uh robbie uh he is asking what are some passages that could be used to respond to the belief in the perpetual virginity of mary something believed in Catholicism, if I'm right? Yeah, yeah, um, and Orthodox uh, religions as well. When we're talking to people who are of a Roman Catholic background, the first two things to remember is that when you're talking to them, they may affiliate with the group socially, but they don't affirm all of their doctrines. So if someone tells you that they're Catholic, they could be, you know, like a you know, casual, I like structure, and this is just the church I grew up in kind of Catholic. But if you run into someone who affirms the doctrines of Vatican II, the Council of Trent, and so on and so forth, um, they are, for all intents and purposes, following a false religion and need to be addressed on some very dodgy issues. The perpetual virginity of Mary is one of them because it's not a biblical concept. It's something that was taken from, I'll be frank about it, the cultural and moral biases of St. Augustine, coupled with a few heretical gospel accounts that note that Mary uh, literally did not birth Jesus physically, that he was, for all intents and purposes, beamed out of her like some Star Trek transition. Now, when we talk to people about this, obviously they're going to be a part of their tribe. They're going to want to defend it, even if they don't know much about it. But if you can meet on one common foundation, and that is the Word of God, then there's two passages that I recommend that you go that can lead you in two directions. One's not so productive given my experience. The other can be productive if they're objective. The two passages I have in mind are the Gospel of Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 and the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13 and verse 56 where Jesus's brothers and sisters, three of which are named and noting Jesus's sisters, plural, means that he had at minimum five biological siblings. Now, if that's something that could be taken at face value, that James, Joseph, Judas would have been, you know, Joseph Jr., but Judas, not Iscariot, it was a common name because it was an off-brand of Judah, and they were from the tribe of Judah, so I'd imagine they'd want some, you know, patriotic names in their uh, repertoire, and his sisters, so at least two were mentioning groups and individuals that would associate with Jesus as a brother, as Big Brother Josh, if you will. Now, if I'm correct in this, once again, leap of faith and interpretation, since James, Joseph, Judas, and Jesus' sisters were not also virgin-born, were not also immaculately conceived, did not also claim for themselves the exclusive traits that belong to Jesus alone, being the Messiah and all, that means that these were naturally conceived and naturally born. So, in order to get around this, and this is where the fork in the road goes uh, in two directions, 
they will usually take the route of saying, well, no, 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 that that's a mistranslation or you're not understanding it. Like I call you my brother. That, that just means that we have some affiliation in our community or a common religious view. Or they would say, well, in the original languages, it's not brothers and blood relative. It's literally in the most literal form, a distant cousin, so to speak. And the only reason they would interpret that passage is because they have a prior commitment to the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, this is where you can take one of two routes. And again, this is uh, tried and true in my own experiences being social with people who disagree with me. The first route that you can go, this isn't the productive one, is in the original languages. And I'll defer to you on this when we're talking about this in detail. If you can call them out on that and get them to commit to the fact the text is very clear that if Jesus is referencing, you know, a brother or sister in the Lord, so to speak, it makes absolute nonsense of the passage because this was a statement being made, especially in Mark, of Jesus being dismissed as far as his credibility is concerned because we know your brothers and sisters. Well, they would have been his brothers and sisters too if they were just speaking of his fellow countrymen. It would make no point is to bring it up as a reason to dismiss Jesus. It's right. nonsense in the passage. It's like the... Um, Orthodox Judaism uh, dismissal of Psalm 22 and saying, you know, like a lion, my hands and my feet. Well, you can take that translation, but it makes nonsense of the passage because there's no verb. That's the point. But you get into semantics about grammar, and even if you bring it up, I've got the concordance right here. The word for brother is Adelphos, and the word for sister is Adelphos. Anything in those passages that would suggest anything more than a literal brother or sister? Well, again, you know, if I were to be as precise as I can, the general understanding of the use of that term would be under using like the term brother or sister. Uh, could it be used to describe distant relatives? Yeah, but only if there were uh, modifiers and uh, disclaimers that would lead someone away from coming to the natural conclusion that we're talking about brothers and sisters, the, and, the and closest relatives. And we want and, them to be objective just as much as yeah. we could. So in that route, you could go either way. Right. You could say, well, it's not clear. Therefore, we can't come to a conclusion either way. That's why I take this route. If the focus is on Mary, and, you know, they get into this rabbit trail about, well, James, Joseph, Judas, all that stuff, they, they want to go that, then bring it back to what started the conversation and talk about, okay, well, perpetual virginity, what is that doctrine trying to emphasize? It's building up Mary to be mm -hmm. this super saint, so to speak, to be holy in the eyes of God. And the reason for that, again, I mentioned St. Augustine, but let's, say, let's stick to Scripture here is because in Revelation chapter 14, when the 144,000 are in heaven, and they died at this point in the tribulation, they are described as being virgins and follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, pointing that out to them and saying, okay, what makes someone more right with God? The physical or lack thereof activities in marriage that they mm, did or did yeah. not commit to, or the fact that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes? Salvation is by no other name, the name of me not consummating marriage. 
No, no, it's in the name of Jesus Christ. So if that's then what we can also agree on, the common name of salvation that we both claim for ourselves, then we can go back to Mary and ask, so why is there such a heavy emphasis culturally on Mary being a virgin? Well, there's two problems with this. It's to denote some aspect of sinlessness, as if sexual intimacy is something to be considered sinful. It's not. But let's just take it from her mouth, where she quotes, believe it or not, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, Hannah's song of praise when she was given a child, um, the last judge of Israel, believe it or not, and also makes a point of emphasis in her uh, what's called Magnificat. Now, again, I want to make sure that I'm quoting this directly. So in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46, it says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. In order to consider someone your Savior, you need to be a save-e. And note, it's not saying like, well, Mary's making a reference to the book of Isaiah where it notes that God is the only Savior. No, she claims direct ownership in this hymn to Christ, where she's acknowledging what? Not hymn to Christ, it's an expression of praise to God, but I digress. My Savior my inset ownership. And if you go into Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was dedicated at the temple on the eighth day of his life, what, what, or his physical incarnation, what was the reason for her bringing two turtle doves in order to make the offering? It was for her uncleanness, that every child that opens the womb is going to require the sacrifice. It's known as a sin offering. So all that being laid out. When you're talking to someone that would make a to do about the perpetual virginity of Mary. It's like, Private Pile, you love the Virgin Mary, don't you? Well, the reason that's emphasized is because, A, of a cultural assumption, not a biblical assumption, that being a virgin or not somehow makes you sinful. Secondly, that Mary had to be sinless, which is blasphemous, but not necessarily relevant to the conversation we're having. In regards to the perpetual virginity of Mary, bring up the fact that she and Joseph had at least five other children and then follow this rabbit trail. Instead of getting caught up on the languages, because it doesn't go anywhere, focus on who Mary presented herself to be and as a fellow servant, a maidservant of the Lord. Someone who presented herself faithful to the ministry that she was called and equipped for by the Holy Spirit, just like all of us. Note that her calling was a singular ministry that no one else in history had the honor of being a part of, but nonetheless, just as much an object and recipient of God's grace as we all are. And if you can leave on those terms, I've had much longer relationships with Roman Catholics that are willing to grant all of those points and follow that conversation out, then getting lost in the weeds of, well, is it Adelphos or Adelphos? Was that uh, brother in the Lord or brother in the, the what about in First Corinthians? Nowhere productive. So just remember that, Robbie, and I think you'll do fine, and note that these won't be the only conversations you'll have, but those are some of the passages I keep in mind. Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't agree more that uh, one of the most important points in all of this is the heart and uh, the, the graciousness that you enter into it, because I speak as a person that uh, grew up in an area that was largely Roman Catholic mm. uh, in Southern California, and boy, if you said something about the Virgin Mary, questioning her in any sense, yeah. uh, it was like talking about someone's mom, yeah. you know, and I mean, people would really get, you know, right. and, you know, again, I understand the chivalry behind that, and you know, you, you want to stand up for this wonderful woman, and who are you to say something like that about her? 
Uh, I get that. But the, 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 I think we can, with respect, with uh, a uh, speaking the truth in love commitment, not compromising in any way, say, well, you know, that is your church's tradition. But I think we would both agree that uh, anything that our church teaches or holds its tradition should be based upon God's word. And then you can go through these scriptures. And one I'd add uh, to the conversation, Sean, would be uh, Matthew chapter 1, after uh, Joseph uh, found out that Mary was expecting Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Uh, He, like anybody else in this world, thought it was the world's lamest excuse for an unplanned pregnancy. Mm -hmm. They were betrothed, which was a phase of Jewish marriage where for a year... You would have all the legal responsibilities of being married, but you would not consummate the marriage. Mm. So here's Mary. She's pregnant. She says it's by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, we are told, being a man of stern principle uh, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Mm. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, and what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the uh, virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now here's where it gets interesting. It says, Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife. That phrase indicates that they went through a very stripped down version of the marriage ceremony. Usually there was this seven day marriage feast. It was the social event of the year. And, you know, the the, the greatest point of pride of any Jewish father and mother was seeing, you know, their their kids uh, entering into marriage and starting a family and all this. Had none of that, you know, which might indicate Uh, why there was no room for them in the end. They had relatives Mm. in Bethlehem. Mm. But if the word got out, you know, that you've discredited the family like that, oh, you know, you're not not coming in here. Mm. Uh, Why Jesus ended up being born uh, in a stable and laid in a manger. Mm. But notice it says, he took him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Well, the idea of knowing uh, goes all the way back to Genesis. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and brought forth a child and called him Cain. Uh, the, the phrase is used consistently from that time onward to refer to the sexual relationship that is enjoyed between a man and a woman in marriage. So, you know, we see that Joseph did not have sexual relations with Mary until Jesus was born, but afterwards, uh, we are told, until after uh, she had brought forth her for his firstborn son, and God blessed them with a large family, which was a sign of God's favor in right. that culture. Uh, again, five brothers and at least two sisters that we know of. So, uh, uh, you know, those are the facts on the ground. But as I said, uh, you know, don't use them like a blunt instrument. Um, you know, don't use them, you know, to uh, ridicule or put somebody down. Uh, have respect for where they're coming from and, and what their background is all about and what their emotions might be in those circumstances mm. but uh let's let's not compromise on the scripture but let's share the truth and love yeah always a good approach yeah. thank you well robbie thank you for that that question hope that 
helps you out with uh, that topic. Uh, we have a question from Adonai. We haven't heard from you for a while, as, uh, to my knowledge. So welcome to the show. Thanks uh, for he being is, here. For those of you uh, not familiar with him, he uh, runs a uh, discipleship-oriented Calvary Bible College for young men in a heavily Muslim area in Nigeria. Mm. And uh, just wonderful ministry. Uh, have so much respect for Adni and his commitment to God. But go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So we're glad for your question and glad we have time for it on today's show. Uh, in Exodus 4, we have an account of the disturbing incident in which God was going to kill Moses. <laughs> it appeared that God was threatening to kill Moses because Moses had not circumcised his son. Now, my question is, why was that particular sin being judged so harshly by God? Yeah, because to him who much is given, much is required. Moses had seen all the signs he was going to present before Pharaoh, and if he wasn't going to lead by example in observing this Hebrew custom to the Hebrew people, then God was going to deal with them very directly on it. Yeah, and uh, the reason that his son had not been circumcised was uh, both Midianites and Israelites practiced circumcision, but Midianites practiced circumcision, like many of the other uh, cultures around the Jews at that time. Uh, essentially, when a uh, uh, young man would enter into puberty, that's when they would circumcise at that point. And it goes back uh, to the time Abraham Ishmael was circumcised at that time, yes. and Isaac was when he was born. So uh, here we see that Moses, who God was calling to be the guy who was going to communicate the law, uh, was probably deferring to what was more comfortable for Zipporah and her Midianite background than actually following through and doing what God told him to do. So why uh, does the Lord meet him and seek to kill him? Zipporah takes a sharp stone, cuts off the foreskin of her son, cast it at Moses' feet and said, surely you're a husband of blood to me. So God let him go. Then she said, you're a husband of blood because of the circumstance. You can see that Zipporah wasn't happy about that, even though it spared uh, her husband's life. And even though God seemingly had a different point of view on that, she seems frustrated, confused because of her cultural background. But uh, the, the most important thing that we see in this and, and the, the takeaway application point for all of us is that if we're going to be uh, individuals that communicate God's truth to people, uh, the the man and the message have to be identical. Mm. Uh, you know, it can't be a situation where you have, well, don't do as I do, but do as I say. You know, you really want to get yeah. uh, your reputation uh, discredited, you know, live by that lifestyle. You want to be a lousy parent, have that be your uh, uh, continual message you send to your kids. So before Moses could even speak a word to Pharaoh, right? Uh, to whom much is given, as you mentioned, much is required. Uh, and uh, it had to start with him first. Uh, Howard Hendricks of Dallas Seminary used to say, if it doesn't work at home, don't export it. Uh, if Moses was going to lay these things out and say, the one who does these things will live by them, uh, you know, the one that violates these commands in a lot of circumstances was going to die, he had to be willing to put himself under the same standard, mm -hmm. if you will, the same consequence if he played fast and loose with God's truth. Right. So, you know, there, there we see this incident. A lot yep. of people look at that and go, whoa, what in the world's going on there? Yep. Well, what was going on there was it was like uh, Moses' ordination ceremony, if you will, with God. Mm. Uh, he wasn't sitting in front of a bunch of seminary profs and taking a the theology exam, but his theology exam was intensely practical. 
And God was like, can I trust you, not just to be someone who explains my word, but to be an example? Yes. So. Yeah. Anything else to add on that, Sean? No. Well, well towards the end of our show here, um, what was it that we mentioned, something that we were going to discuss tomorrow? You want to maybe give a preview of that? Yeah, just briefly. Um, when we're talking about, because it's the month of October at the time of this recording, people wonder, oh, is Halloween pagan? Is it based on uh, Samhain, spelled Samhain, English letters and so forth? Uh, nothing can be further from the truth. The idea of Halloween as we observe its customs today is a largely... Eastern or a Western European and American grown holiday uh, that literally is based around two things mainly Guy Fawkes Day and the celebration of All Saints Day and the accommodations that were made not just for those in heaven but also those in purgatory and in hell. It was a largely French custom where during the week of the All Saints procession they would dress up in their Sunday finest so to speak. Likewise in your neck of the woods Dave, uh, Guy Fawkes Day, remember remember the 5th of November as English immigrants were coming over into the United States. They're bringing this custom where the week leading up to it, including October 31st in particular, they'd play pranks like Guy Fox did only with fire and explosives, yeah. but more in terms of teepee and stuff. So in order to accommodate this cultural uh, diversity, so to speak, in the newfound country, people were hosting parties and costumes where they would include themes like Gaelic, werewolves, and witches, and so forth, all those sort of things, in order to keep the kids busy so they wouldn't go around vandalizing stuff. That's where the majority of our Halloween customs came from today, and it's largely an effort not to glorify evil, but just to do something fun. If it stumbles you, by all means, do your own thing, but note that you're not sinning if you want to just dress up and get candy. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and again, maybe we can get inside a bit more tomorrow thank you for joining us on a reason for hope great questions today pastor scott thank you i'm sure. very pro keep that in mind make a yeah. note of that yeah <laughs> all right we'll be back same time same place tomorrow god bless you have a wonderful rest of your day god bless you you've been listening to a reason for hope thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through god's word one question of the heart at a time until we meet again we would love to connect with you you can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.